Good morning. I'm Aya Wimala. Today's Tuesday, January the 4th. Um, it's winter. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> We've had some cold weather. It's uh, where my mom is outside of Knoxville. They've, they had snow, and that's pretty amazing. It snowed all night, not last night, but the night before. It snowed all night, and actually stayed on the ground. As far as I know, it might still be on the ground. So um, that's pretty amazing. And we've still got a lot of snow on the ground here. So I was, I've been searching this morning for something that I read on uh, Facebook from Deepa Ma. And it was just about, about uh, Vipassana or insight meditation. And I wanted to read it as we meditated today, and I can't find it on my uh, Kindle, and it's on my phone, so I can't dig it up on my phone while I'm with you. So I will, today is Tuesday, so Thursday I'll have that and print it out. And uh, just read it. It's very familiar. It's pretty much exactly what we do. And uh, I think Deepa Ma who most of you probably have heard of or know, or, uh, you know, Sharon Salzberg was a student of hers. Deepa Ma was one of her core teachers, and she's no longer here living, but she's uh, she was in India. And so many, uh, so many of the teachers I know, uh, Theravadan monks have, uh, have met her, had met her at some time in their lives. And they're, they're very, Everyone who met her just found her to be just pure peace and love. So I think her teachings are really valuable. Her teachings, just her being, is very valuable. So what I'll do today instead is read a short, just the last part of the chapter three on uh, realistic motivation in Robert Thurman's book, Wisdom is Bliss. We've been reading about his uh, realistic motivation, which we call right intention, and often call it right motivation. Um, his chapter is just is very thought-provoking and very, you know, it's fun to just kind of jump into it because it's from a different tradition than most of us, uh, than my tradition, the Theravadan tradition, and so it's good to get other points of view. It's like a deeper investigation, just looking, investigating, taking it in, uh, seeing how we relate to it and how it fits with us. So, sorry, I keep uh, sipping because I'm just hoarse sometimes in the morning. I don't know what that is. <clears throat> just, Just me, just my body. So this last section in realistic motivation, and we've we've read a little bit about the differences between the Mahayana and Theravada tradition in terms of um, the Bodhisattva concept and that feeling that re, that uh, non-dualistic feel non-dualistic feeling of not being separate from anything or any being. And, and I think we pretty much are in agreement with that between Theravadan and Mahayanan. We still have this self. We're still working for our own 
liberation, but because we are connected with all life and connected together through the earth and through just the air we breathe, we are also doing it for all beings. So the last section, he talked about uh, his approach, and then he talked about some about the Theravadan approach, which he has great respect for. And now he has Buddhism. The last short section is Buddhism without Buddhism. And I'd like to read this. I'm not taking any kind of stance, but I really want to read what he has to say, and it's probably interesting for all of us. So this last section in, in Realistic Motivation from the Eightfold Path is Buddhism without Buddhism. Buddhism is not only entering the West via traditional Western Buddhist publications like Lion's Roar. I'm sure you're familiar with most of these. Uh, Tricycle and so forth. It's also coming in via Scientific American, for example. Mindfulness has gone mainstream. I gave a series of lectures in California in the 1990s entitled Buddhism Without Buddhism, in which I said that Buddhism would be countercultural at first, first viewed as an artifact of Buddhist countries, then it naturally, that it naturally started that way, but that it would go mainstream when people saw the importance of mindfulness, self-cultivation, and self-applied mental hygiene <laughs> and put it into their lives without becoming Buddhist. Then it would become an innovation in our own culture and people would use it happily and it would deliver real benefits. Think, for example, of John Kabat-Zinn's work on mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR. We've all heard of that. Several of you may have taken that training and that sort of thing. People are bringing Buddhism into a more mainstream role via education, and they're even getting away from the term meditation, for example, which is perceived by countercultural by some, seeming a bit like a heresy. Instead, they're going with phrases such as mental hygiene or concentration or anti-ADHD therapy. That's how it is done. You can be a member of another religion and still engage in these practices. To make Buddhism more mainstream in the United States, you can do what His Holiness the Dalai Lama does with utmost sincerity. Insist that the main thing is to understand there is no need to convert. It's preferable to remain with your family religion or non-religion but you can still listen to lectures on Buddhism and experiment with Buddhist practices simply as educational experiments for the mind. This he's saying this is one way. The procedure of teaching and learning that Buddha put forth in the Eightfold Path is preserved in all forms of Buddhism, whether or not they are explicitly, explicitly so labeled. This being the case, Geshe La's interrupting of my unlearned escapist meditation trance efforts and his insistence that my life person would not be accomplished by my being a monk 
as admirable and necessary as that was in general, turned out ultimately to be a real godsend. This is a very important point to make to new Buddhist, old Buddhist, and modern Buddhist, who tend to think the doorway to Buddhism is meditation and asceticism. Some even say that Buddhism itself is only meditation, only withdrawing from the world, which is very wrong. Buddha taught the dualistic form of Buddhism to his less emotionally developed disciples, mostly highly intellectual, world-weary male Brahmin ascetics from the priest class with a very strong sense of self-absolution Absolutization, 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 hmm. who wouldn't have been able to easily imagine the world of life and death, pain, women, kitchen, cooking, hunger, injustice, etc., as Nibbana. And he uses Nirvana, which is the Sanskrit word, same, same meaning no matter their level of sophistication. And that is what I wanted to do right away, jump into a trance, a seemingly uncompounded, transcendental state, and consider it a done deal, apart from the lousy world. <laughs> so let me, let me read that paragraph again, because I think it's got so much we could just take apart. But we're not a book club, so we can't do that right now. Buddha taught the dualistic form of Buddhism to his less emotionally developed disciples, mostly highly intellectual, world-weary male Brahmin ascetics from the priest class, the very highest level of society in India at that time, with a very strong sense of self-absolutization, who wouldn't have been easy to easily imagine the world of life and death pain, women, kitchen, cooking, hunger, injustice, etc., as Nibbana, no matter their level of sophistication. And that is what I wanted to do right away, jump into a trance, a seemingly uncompounded transcendental state, and consider it a done deal, apart from the lousy world. Yeah, we see that with a lot of people. They want to go somewhere else. They want to be somewhere else. Like away from the world is what they think of as Nibbana, not jumping into it and finding it there. Where Buddha left the door open for them and me was that he never clearly described Nibbana or Nirvana as such an absolutely abstract state. On the contrary, he did clearly describe the quiet the quite attainable, four absolute-seeming, bodiless, formless trance states of infinite space, infinite awareness, unconscious, unconscious nothingness, and beyond consciousness and unconsciousness. And he clearly stated that none of them is nirvana. And we call those the jhana states. And the Buddha did say they were all, they're all part of that concentrated samadhi, but they are not nirvana. They, they are temporary. And we move through those once we attain those states. 
if we get stuck in them, we're just stuck at, uh, we're not at the true liberation. The realistic worldview, and therefore <clears throat> the realistic motivation or life purpose, are the first two branches of the Noble Eightfold Path. Realistic worldview is where you have to learn and critically reflect with your thinking power to develop wisdom. And once you develop critical wisdom, even on a discursive level, then your intention or life purpose to travel the path to enlightenment as the meaning of all your lives, the present one and all your future ones, becomes the inevitable, logical step from your realistic worldview. Why waste your precious human lifetime doing anything less than using every conscious moment to evolve toward Buddhahood? So the intention or the life purpose is to travel the path to the enlightenment as the meaning of all of our lives to come. The present one and all your future ones. It's just the inevitable logical step from your realistic worldview. And in our Theravadan tradition, we don't talk about moving toward Buddhahood, but we talk about uh, continually, life after life, moving towards liberation. We're not. We're not saying we 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 want to be um, that we're finished in this lifetime. I haven't heard anybody say that. If it is one's life purpose as a human evolutionary being to attain the bliss of enlightenment, and you feel much better when you adopt this super motive then you also must develop the altruistic mind of love and compassion for all beings to bring them with you, to share your bliss with them. That spirit, the spirit of universal enlightenment that makes you a bodhisattva or open or awake-hearted being. A bodhisattva is simply an open or awake hearted being, is the cause of the firm stability of Buddhahood, the blissful way of remaining in the world for the benefit of others while always feeling the blissful presence of nirvana permeating the entire situation. So just think about the life of the Buddha. He lived to be about 84 years old, and once he attained enlightenment, he, he saw all the suffering in the world. That didn't go away. And he grew old and had pain in his body and had uh, issues that he, he had pain with all, all of his life. But he, the blissful presence of Nibbana permeates the entire situation. So he was, he was experiencing Nibbana even as he lived right in the midst of the world and in the samsaric conditions of the world. Once realistic worldview and realistic motivation for self and other are in place, the ethical branches of the path automatically follow. One lives with realistic speech, action, livelihood, and creative effort. And on that calm and loving basis, 
the mental branches of realistic mindfulness and concentration become possible and fruitful. Now, if we have come to understand our life purpose as using the amazing human life form we have achieved to, to evolve towards its summit perfection of perfect wisdom and perfect love and compassion, we embark on the ethical transformation that is required. It is interesting that this begins with realistic speech. And that's the next chapter. So I certainly agree with him that when we work with one, the others follow. Once realistic worldview and realistic motivation for self and other are in place, that's the spirit that uh, wants us to bring others along. The ethical branches of the path automatically follow. One lives with realistic speech, action, livelihood, and creative effort. And on that calm and loving basis, the mental branches of realistic mindfulness and concentration become possible and fruitful. His words are beautiful. And... um, but to me, they're not controversial at all at, with any of the teachings I've heard from Theravadan teachers and teachings that I've studied in the Buddhist suttas. And we've read a lot about realistic uh, speech. So this, uh, his writing just opens things up wider, lets us see it from different angles, different directions. So why don't we practice with our time? (laughs) And just um, touching in with our bodies and what's going on with us, touching in with our thoughts, just touching in and then letting go. That's what I'd like to practice today. That's a part of what uh, I wanted to read from Adipa Ma. And I just love her words talking about it. But it's what we often do. So just keep continue thinking as you meditate of just touching in. If something arises, touch in with it. Whether it's pain or joy or uh, a feeling of stress or hunger or um, anything emotional or if you have any emotion that's going on and you feel it in your body, feeling it somewhere in your body manifesting. It might manifest as pain, or uh, it might manifest as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Just touch in with it, and you can just be with that. When you notice thoughts that are arising, just touch in with them. Then let go and go back to being with the silence. See if, see if in between that touching in, you can just let go of everything. So, lifting the shoulders and rolling your shoulders back a bit. Just be aware of the body breathing. Let it do the work for us. The body breathes. 
and just be aware of the breath. Your posture should allow you to relax, feel lifted up, you hear a sound, just touch in, then let it go. Anything that comes in through your sense doors, anything that arises in your body, just touch in with it. Be aware and then let it go. So we're always being told to let go, to let be. And now we just are beginning that with touch in. So it's be, having that awareness. Feel something in your body. Feel a thought arising. Pick up something from your senses. Touch into it. And then let it go, just coming back to the silence.
touch in, be aware and let go. And when you let go, just come back to the silence. We let it go. We don't keep adding to it and building a story. We just touch in. And then we let it go. Now, if you have time, just continue staying with your breath, coming back to your breath gently whenever you become distracted or your mind goes off, thinking of something, building a story. When you see what you're doing, just come back. But don't don't repress yourself. Don't hold yourself down. Be aware of everything. But if something arises, a sound, a thought, a feeling, uh, touch into it, touch in with it. But then let it go. Just practice. And you can practice that all day. Touch in and then let it go. Come back to the breath. And if we're with the breath, we know we're in the present moment.
So may everything we do and say and think be done not only for our benefit, but for the benefit of all beings everywhere. So may all of you be well, may you be at peace, may you be content. Thank you.